we allow teams the autonomy to make their own decisions, they actually can take some pride in the craftsmanship and creativity of their work. If you study any of the psychological inquiries into what actually makes people happy at work, well, it is things like autonomy and mastery and independence. So optimize your process for letting those things flourish without you being a goddamn nag all the time. Whoa, what did you do? What's the status of this? Hello and welcome to Secret Leaders. Today's guest is Basecamp and Hey.com's CTO. He used to be the chief technology officer, but lately it's really just chief trolling officer. That is David Heinemeyer Hansen or DHH to his friends, aka anyone on Twitter, but no other social platforms. Uh, firstly, David, how did I pronounce your full name? That was pretty good. Yeah, not too far off there. Yeah, you can tell that I'm a European, not an American, with uh, you know the kind of skills like that to announce other country nationality names. Right. Um, obviously, Chief Trolling Officer is not really his title, but he has over the years gained a rather Marmite-like status as the guy you love or hate as he attacks Silicon Valley's principles, ways of doing business, thinking processes, and just about everything, which has culminated in the last few weeks with a rather brilliant attack on Apple over his latest product, email provider Hey.com, which we're going to come on to. Now, David is also well known for a couple of minor things like his best-selling books, Rework and Remote, but arguably his least impressive accomplishment is being the founder of the programming language Ruby on Rails. So if you add in the fact that he's Le Mans class racing driver winner, you'll realize before we even get going, he's a pretty average boring guy. You're categorically in for a fucking boring time over the next 45 minutes or so, for which we can only apologize as David or DHH probably has very little to say. But we're going to do what we can to get him warmed up. And so just like that, are you ready for a quick fire round, David? Shoot. Cats or dogs? Oh, cats, for sure. I can't stand dogs. Ruby on Rails or Le Mans? Why not both? Oh, because, you know, in this hard world of extreme compromises, one would make you pick. Imagine you had a gun up to your head for one or the other. Um, Ruby on Rails. Yeah, I thought so. I was wondering if you're going to go with your baby or someone else's baby that you then won. Uh, Apple or Google? Neither. I knew you were going to say neither too, but again, <laughs> we'll say Google for you, you know, knowing it might, it might just tip the balance without making you say the words. LinkedIn or Facebook? This is the pregnant pause that I insert instead of making a choice. Yeah, of course. Yeah, neither there too. I gotta say, uh, not my cup of tea. Yeah, but you've got a least favorite. Your least favorite. I think in terms of least amount of damage inflicted on the world probably has to go to LinkedIn. I mean, I'm not quite sure given the spam and all that stuff, but I'll go with LinkedIn. Okay, that's very kind of you. Uh, remote work for the rest of your life or a year off, but you've got to do a day in the office every week for a year when you return. Oh, easily remote for the rest of my life. Getting me back into an office, uh, no thanks. Okay. And Silicon Valley or New York? Oh, New York, obviously. <laughs> Stranded on a desert island and you can take three things. There's internet. So what are they? A computer, a real computer, the kind you can actually program yourself, not a uh, lockdown walled garden. <laughs> I feel like I'm already on that desert island. And I'm like, oh, what did we have before we had just coconuts and manchetis? Um, probably some uh, toolkit and, and maybe a family to hang out with. Let's let's go with that. Yeah, you can tell some people that really think about this stuff sensibly. You're one of them now. Um, last week's guest, the founder of the UK's fastest growing company, Bulb, which is an energy provider. And his uh, one of his three choices was a bathtub. <laughs> I literally don't know how you make such a, a an incredibly successful unicorn company with answers like bathtub in a <laughs> on a desert island. Anyway, this is about you, not him. So we're going to move on to a little bit about your background, please. So where did you grow up and what would you say your upbringing was like? I'm from Copenhagen, Denmark. I was born in Copenhagen uh, and I grew up there for the next 25 years before I moved to the US. And I'd say growing up, I grew up in a very traditional Danish style in terms of going to the public school, getting a great education, having access to a wonderful healthcare system that I needed, 
and um, getting a quote-unquote free education that allowed me to not even be class conscious of the fact that we were at best lower middle class. I mean, middle class in Denmark spans about 80% of the population, so it's a pretty wide band there. But I grew up blissfully unaware of social stratification, in a sense. And I think that really did endow me with a um, strong belief in that system. At first, it wasn't explicit. I didn't know that, oh, I'm a fan of the socially democratic welfare state. But moving to a place that did not have one of those, I quickly realized like, oh, shit, like there's all sorts of stuff missing here. Why do people have to pay tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars because they get sick? Why do they have to go bankrupt? Why can't their kids get a proper education? All these other things slowly dawned on me after um, starting to live in the U.S. But Denmark, 25 years, got a joint degree in computer science and business administration from the Copenhagen Business School and um, used that to some degree in uh, the business that I then ended up joining uh, Basecamp. In 2001, I started working with Jason Fried, my business partner. At that time, just working from Copenhagen, Denmark, while he was in Chicago, Illinois, and we collaborated on some client projects around web design and, and development. And then 2003, started work on Basecamp, which I'm still doing 17 years later. Um, this was also the project that gave birth to Ruby on Rails, which I'm also still working on 17 years later. And the place that I have spent basically my entire working life. I mean, I had a, a couple of years before joining up here, but um, this has been it. Going back to uh, you as a kid quickly, how geeky were you? And how entrepreneurial do you reckon you were back then? I'd say both, but not exclusively so. So I got my first computer when I was six years old, an Amstrad 464 that I was mainly interested in because I was interested in video games. So this was, what, mid-80s? I would type in the games at the back of a magazine or try to do so because um, that was the wonderful means of distribution back then for, for certain types of games. And I really just, I loved video games. And that was the attraction to computers in general for me. I thought for a long time that I was going to be in the video game industry. Um, not only was I interested in playing video games, I was interested in making video games. I was friends with the kind of people who could actually make video games. I read everything about video games. That's how I got into gaming journalism. Um, and that's how I got into the internet, doing gaming journalism myself, writing reviews of games and following the news around games and, and publishing that on the internet. But unfortunately, I realized that programming video games is a lot about math. It's about vectors and polygons and all sorts of shit that I have no patience for whatsoever. So it was kind of um, a problem if you want to be in the video game industry and you, you fancy yourself as someone who likes computers. I'm not exactly an artist. So it wasn't like I was going to draw or make graphics or anything else like that. I was going to have to program. And I, I just didn't like the actual work of it. But it kind of led me to the kind of work that I actually do like, which is programming just at a much higher level. As boring as it sounds, business programming, business logic, it sounds like incredibly dull, but that is the kind of stuff that really just uh, makes my neurons fire. And that was um, kind of what I just got onto. But um, it, it kind of combined then too with that entrepreneurial spirit. Um, I've worked since I was probably eight or nine years old, delivering newspapers at first. I worked at grocery stores. I worked in all sorts of contexts until I found a way to make work happen with a computer. And the first way to make work happen with a computer was to sell and distribute pirated software. 
So this was early nineties, uh, let's say eight, late eighties, early nineties, um, distributing software, finding software, selling software to essentially fund my own habit of liking computers. I'd sell some pirate software. I'd buy a bigger Amiga. I launched a bulletin board system before the internet was kind of a, a big thing. I had like three phone lines going into my tiny little room in, in our Copenhagen house where I remember the um, telecom installer showing up because back then you sort of, you had to get things wired up. And this guy comes into like this 14-year-old's room and he's like, wait, why do you have three phone lines? <laughs> so this was, yeah, something I was involved with early on. The same thing with the, the gaming journalism, spinning the website that I was interested in, making them into sort of a business, like at least finding a way to pay for the games that we wanted to review, either by borrowing them or talking to shops or otherwise. So I've definitely always had that entrepreneurial spirit, wanting to make my own money, wanting to set my own course and... Um, I think those early experiences absolutely helped, not only in setting a direction and what do I want to learn more about, but then also just having the proclivity to to chasing that, to, to chasing this idea that you can make your own thing. Um, you can start your own business and you can run things in a way. I, I was really always a rather poor employee. I had too many fucking ideas and I wouldn't just sit still and shut up and wasn't very well compatible with being an employee and I quickly found that out that it wasn't it wasn't healthy for them and it wasn't healthy for me so um, that's how I ended up um, kind of being part of running my own thing how do you how do you think that that attitude and that behavior that you recognize in yourself uh, permeates with the people that work for you and under you at base camp do you ever do you ever find employees that have that DHH attitude and you're like, oh man, this is going to spell trouble in about six to 12 months better or better you move on now because I've seen this shit before or you try to develop them into uh, trying to develop better, more patient skills that you didn't have? Well, first of all, I think if you do happen to have those fighting genes, if you join up under a banner that's chasing the same goals as you're chasing, it can actually work out all right. The, the reason I ended up being a poor employee was because I couldn't find a company that um, was on the same wavelength as I was when it came to a bunch of these issues. How to, how to develop software, how to run a company, how to um, have good teams and so forth. So I think at Basecamp, there's a fair amount of self-selection that the rebels that we have uh, enlisted, they strive for the same course. And when you do strive for the same course, it is possible to, to fill a, a ship full of rebels. But at the same time, it's also one of those things where you got to realize for some people, even if we are roughly on the same course, it's not better for them to be in your boat. It's better for them to find their own boat. And that's long been one of those things where like, I don't ever try to fight for someone to stay at base camp. If they've decided like, hey, I want to do my own thing. I want to go somewhere else. I'm like, that's wonderful for you. It's really great that you have found a different thing. I remember when I quit a job back in, in Copenhagen, and I quit it because I wanted different things. I wanted to, to start my studies. I, want, I, I didn't really enjoy being at that company anymore. The CEO tried very hard to keep me. It's like, what if I give you more money? What if like A, B, and C? And I was like, it actually ended up making the whole thing seem worse. Right? Like I ended up thinking less of both the company and of that CEO for the desperation that it was like, dude, if you wanted to pay me more money to stay, why did you wait until I quit? Not that the money would have made any difference earlier, but it was just sort of that gesture that, hey, we're actually kind of just trying to get away with the least we could pay you because that's how you would stick around. And then now that you look like you're a flight risk, we're going to pay you more. I was like, ugh, that's not the kind of company I want to be a part of, which, I mean, that's the other thing. So I found out I was going to be a poor employee. But part of that process of finding that out was working for other people. And that was some of the best lessons I've ever had in both business, management, people skills, and whatever, seeing all the things that I would never want to do myself, and seeing them illustrated in my own context with myself as a participant on the other side of the table going like, 
these doofuses don't know what the fuck they're doing. How can they not see what all of us, the employees, see so clearly? How can they be so myopic? And then trying to scar that into my mind and thinking, you know what? If I ever get this chance to set the rules here or, or set the direction, I damn well am going to remember this. Interesting. I, it's really it's, it's very interesting to get the sort of po posthumous experience as the uh, disgruntled employee and how it actually sets off sets off the tone for how you want to be as a boss. Before we get onto you as a as a boss and I guess in the broader context of Basecamp, super interested about Ruby on Rails. So, firstly, why the name? Got to ask that question. It's interesting to me, at the very least. Uh, I'm sure there's a million nerds that are going to be listening who are like, "Fuck off, read, do your background." Uh, check but i want to know from the horse's mouth and then like what is it for non-technical listeners like what does that even mean sure so ruby on rails is two things it is ruby a programming language from I believe 93 out of japan uh made by a guy named mats who created a new kind of programming language with a new mission not to create the fastest programming language, not to create the most memory-efficient programming language, but a programming language for making programmers happy. Like that right there, just as a statement of intent, blew my mind when I first stumbled across it. Then the on-rails part is the part I've been involved with, which is building a toolkit for making web applications, whether that is things like Basecamp or Hey, or it's Shopify, or Twitter, or Airbnb, or Hulu, or a million other web apps and services that uh, most people would know, it's, it's the toolkit that kind of makes that easier. And it's the toolkit that I extracted from the first Ruby on Rails application, Basecamp, back in 2003. And I then turned it into open source. And open source means um, all the instructions of how this is put together are out there for anyone to see. It's free to use. It's free to change. You can do whatever you want with it. I don't make any money off Ruby on Rails in its usage. And it's just been an incredibly satisfying movement to be part of, to popularize a language that at the time when I got involved, which is 2003, was pretty obscure in the West. It was not a well-known programming language. It did not have a strong foothold here. And then in just a few short years after the release of Ruby on Rails, it went from this sense of obscurity to being a broad mainstream choice that companies could pick, not just because they had a bunch of programmers who were like, oh, I, I really want to do this because it makes me happy, but because it was like a sound business decision to make, which really felt like I was, I was paying back some of the incredible growth that Ruby had inspired in me as a programmer. Around the same time as I discovered Ruby was when I really came to realize that I wanted to be a programmer for the rest of my life. Up until finding Ruby programming for me was way more tool oriented. It's like, this is a wrench and I need a wrench because I want to tighten these screws on this thing because I want this thing to work. I, I don't really care that much about the color of the wrench. I don't really care who makes it. It's just a tool. And then I flipped when I found Ruby because I went, oh, this is so much more than a tool. This is a means of creative expression. And that sounds very, I don't know, new agey, but it was really what I, I felt like I, I had found this glove that just fit my brain perfectly. And it allowed me to express all these ideas I had in such a way that both the expression itself was meaningful. I got to create apps like Basecamp and now Hey, but also just the act itself had meaning. I wasn't just turning a wrench. I was dancing with this wonderful programming language in a way that would just make my heart and my head sing in the most profound sense of human satisfaction, in this sense of flow, in the sense of complete immersion into an intellectual endeavor where you just went like, I want to just keep doing this. This is just so, not only is it so much fun, because it's not just like this hedonic, like, ha-ha, this is... It was just satisfying in such a deep way because it felt like I got started on a path where it could become better all the time. 
And the path was so long. It wasn't like we would just reach the first bus stop and then, oh, I was done. We can stop walking. Let's just get on the bus. I could just keep walking and walking and walking. And Ruby, I mean, it's funny because in other contexts, I, I think of like, well, technology, these are just tools. And But with Ruby and me, it's it's different. It's very romantic. A lot of programmers pride themselves on... knows, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Thankfully, this was something I found uh, prior to meeting my wife and getting married. So she was well aware that um, this relationship was pre-existing. But this sense that um, for a lot of programmers, they take pride in like, I'm not a, say, Ruby programmer or Java programmer. I'm a programmer. And I learn lots of programming languages every year because like that's how I express myself. And all blessed be with that. It's wonderful to have people who, who do that, right? That's how we cross-pollinate between communities and so forth. It's just not me. I'm completely romantic. Ruby is the one for me when it comes to programming languages. I'm not in the market for another general purpose programming language. Not to say that that would never, ever happen. Just that like, I've been doing this for 20 years. I still wake up when I get to do programming, which hasn't been the last few weeks. But prior to that, I did a lot. And I think like, this is amazing. I get to do this and it's not only fun and whatever, I get to create a business with it. And yeah, so I'm pretty um, attached. <laughs> Let's just call it that to Ruby. Uh, like you should be with any brain glove to use your expression. Yes, I think it is rare to find this. And until I did, I didn't even understand it. I remember reading about other programmers sort of musing about their programming languages or the tools and thinking like, yeah, that's a bit much, dude, right? And here I am. Like anyone listening to you, you know, chat about your babe, Ruby, and how she's derailed your marriage, potentially. But Thankfully, very compatible uh, to, to be intellectually stimulated um, while being in a relationship at the same time. So I think that the... I get the incredulity, right? Like you just go, what the fuck are you talking about? Right? It's a programming language. It's, it's in the ends, it's all ones and zeros that it boils down to. But that's like thinking like um, the English language is just about communication. It's just about, it's a transport for information to get from one brain to the other. Yeah, you know what? I think Hemingway or Shakespeare would probably feel differently about that. Or like, oh, painting is just like colors that were squeezed from, I don't know, shellfish. And that's how you get perfect. And then you put it on, on, on paper, and that's a canvas. Yeah, do you know what? Uh, I don't see that when I see a Picasso or, or something else. So, I mean, is is that true? Because if if so, I just learned something fucking great. <laughs> I don't actually even know. The, the reason I said uh, shellfish is is that I know that the color for purple um, for like ancient Rome uh, when they would dye their ropes, it came from shellfish blood. And the only reason I know that is for reading Seneca and the um, and the Stoics. If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner Vanta comes in. Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more, getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanta. Just head to vanta.com slash secretleaders. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash secretleaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI. But until the machines take over, there's only one thing that's going to determine your company's fortunes. People. This isn't some kind of hollow point to make me look good. If you speak privately to any successful entrepreneur, they'll confirm it's true. So, if you're a leader of a growing business, then you should check out Personio. It brings together all the important HR things like hiring, onboarding, payroll data, performance reviews, and so on. 
You don't want loads of employees sending you emails asking for time off. You want to be able to see things objectively, like it's taking you too long to hire. You want to do performance reviews well, having clear goals for people that are logged in a centralized system. And you want to do all these things in one simple tool without having to become an HR expert. All of this is possible with Personio. Check it out at personio.com forward slash secret leaders. That's personio.com forward slash secret leaders. There's a link in the show notes. What was the inspiration behind Basecamp or 37 Signals uh, for the nerds out there? I remember it as 37 Signals for sure. Why? Why does it exist? What does it do? Where is it now? So 37 Signals was the name of the company that's still the company today. It was founded in 1999 as a web design company. And then uh, I joined up in 2001 and we still did some web design for clients. And then in 2003, we started work on a tool for ourselves to make it easier to deal with these client projects because we were doing client projects over email and invariably as anyone who's done projects of any kind over email eventually something gets dropped and it falls through the cracks and someone doesn't get the right version of the file and you end up sending something to print that shouldn't have been that or um, missing out on something important and we went you know what we can do better we can do better than just using email to organize these projects we know technology so let's just build some technology to handle this better. And we built about half a toolkit for ourselves just to, to deal with this, to track the to-dos, to track the files, to track the major updates on the project. And then we showed it to a few friends in the industry. And they went like, this is pretty great. Can I buy it? And we went, I don't know. I guess you can. Sure. And about halfway through, we we kind of thought like, Okay, let's turn this into a product. Let's just see where it goes. We had made a, a, an earlier project, a product together, Jason and I, called Single File, which was this track your books collection and who you lend it to thing. Uh, it didn't go that far, but we had just had some experience together building an app. And here comes along this Basecamp thing, 2003. We spent about six months doing it, release it in early February of 2004 under the banner of project management software for creative firms. It was very narrowly focused when we initially got started because we just wanted to sell the tool that we needed to use to manage our creative clients to other creative services firms who needed the same. And it didn't take very long until we started to realize that a lot of not creative services firms were signing up for it. You had um, churches or general purpose companies or organizations of all kinds signing up for it. And they were like, this is a really great tool. We really need this too. And uh, that's when we realized that Basecamp was much broader than just a toolkit for creative services firms to talk to their clients. That in fact, most companies and most organizations of all kinds need to make sure things don't fall through the cracks, need to track uh, what they're working on, who's working on it, and when it's supposed to be delivered, need to distribute broad updates. And a lot of them, particularly at the time, were just using email to do it, and they were falling into the same traps that we were falling into. So slowly, we broadened the scope of Basecamp, even if we didn't actually broaden the software very much at all, because it had been a general purpose software from the get-go, we broadened the scope of who we were talking to, to essentially address anyone who needed a all-in-one toolkit to manage their projects and manage their organization or company. And we kind of kept working on that, and, and over the years have made several new versions of that. We're currently selling Basecamp 3 on Basecamp.com as the all-in-one toolkit for remote work, which I think we'll be talking about as well, because that's the other thing that we've been doing for the past 20 years is to work remotely. And when you do work remotely, there aren't these in-person crutches you can do. You, you don't have like a shared whiteboard that you can just write the schedule on. So you, you absolutely need a toolkit like this. So that's Basecamp. It's interesting, like timing, isn't it? With your with your uh, beating the drum over many years, I guess, as people like yourself, there's obviously, you know, automatic, there's like a few of the big dogs in remote working, and all of a sudden, everyone wants to talk to you about that specific thing. First question, are you almost pissed off? Like the amount of requests I'm assuming you might be getting on the terms of remote work when you're like, well, I've been literally writing books and fucking talking about this forever. Or are you motivated and think actually it's cool what's happened in, as in obviously it's awful what's happened, but it's cool that people are now open to this and technology brings this opportunity together. 
must be quite exciting from both both a personal brand expertise point of view and as a company point of view. So I guess I'm interested in how you've shifted your mindset or approached it uh, from an attitudinal point of view. I think if anything good is going to come out of this horrible pandemic, a switch in how we work is pretty high on the list of positives that we can take from this. And this switch to realizing that remote work is is not just possible, it's enjoyable, it's productive, it's liberating, it's allowing new kinds of people to work for a company that you wouldn't have considered before. It has all these positives to it. It also has some drawbacks, and we can talk about those as well. But the positives are so strong that I'm just thrilled that more people are now going to finally have an opportunity to get access to those. And the other thing I realized early on in my career of advocacy is that if you want to make a change, you have to be able to repeat yourself and be interested in repeating yourself for a decade or two, or in some cases, even more than that. There are plenty of activists around the world who have been saying the same shit for 20, 30, 40 years, and the world wasn't ready to listen. And that was what happened with remote work. The world at large was not interested in what we had to say on a broad mainstream scale, neither when we started talking about this in 2004, 2005, nor when we published an entire book about the topic in 2013. But in 2020, they're ready. And I'm just like, it's wonderful that you're here. I've been expecting you. So let's talk. Let's You're talk there with your cup of smug work. tea, <laughs> ready, <laughs> ready and waiting. I, I think that is, the, that is the trap, right? The trap is if you've been saying something for a long time and it didn't get any traction and then all of a sudden it gets traction, you want to brew that smug tea. Yeah. How do you feel about being like humble or like with humility on that? Because there's no reason for you to be, but like literally, how are you approaching it? You're approaching it with like a smirk and a, I told you so. And then speaking to your wife about like, look at all these fuckers. I've been saying the same shit to them for the last 20 years and now they're listening. Or are you like of the mindset of like, come one, come all my friends, enter into my wisdom corner, sorry, dungeon in your case? I'd hope I'm more on the on the latter end of the spectrum because I don't think anything positive comes from brewing smug tea. And especially it's like, what was the point? Was the point to tell everyone I'm right? Like, uh, who the fuck, A, wants to hear that? B, what does that help anyone? Or is the point, like, I would like more people to enjoy the spoils of a remote work life, right? Yeah, that's that's the camp I'm in because that's what I lived, right? And I look at people who don't have access to that and I go like, this is such a waste. This is such a, why, why are there people who commute for an hour or two in some cases to get to a goddamn office to sit in front of a computer all day? It makes no sense, neither economically, ecologically, humanly. It just doesn't make any sense, right? Yeah, I mean, in LA, that's like two hours for 10 miles. It, right. So to finally get to this point where we collectively realize, oh, our bad. Yeah, it wasn't necessary at all. We should actually not have done that. You can all work from home now. Is a liberation. And I think um, save the smug tea and just enjoy the liberation and I think that, that that's true in so many areas, not just in remote work. Like here in the U.S., for a while, you had a, a presidential candidate, Bernie Sanders, who you'd watch a clip from him 2020, right, saying the things about, like, we need better worker protections, we should have education for all, uh, health care should not be guarded by price and so on. Then you play a clip from him at a rally in, like, 1972, and you're like, we should have worker protection, and we should have – it was the same thing. Right, The world was not, for whatever reason, interested in hearing – well, not the world. The United States was not interested in hearing what he had to say in like the 70s or the 80s or the 90s or the 2000s. And then all of a sudden, a lot of people were interested, whether that turned into the disappointment that the presidential candidate currently is or not. It changed the debate because here is someone who's been saying the same things for 40 years. I don't think – he's bitter. I think he's like, fucking, yeah, this is awesome. Like, finally, there's an opening here. And we can use the fact that we have been honing this message 
for 40 years in his case. And in our case, in remote work, we've been honing this message for 20 years. We've been doing it for 20 years. Let's help people. Let's help people get on it. So I enjoy more the like, hey, I've done this for 20 years. Here's some tips and tricks that you can use when you're making this transition and it's going to be better. And when we go back after the pandemic at some point, however long that's going to be, particularly in the United States, we can go back wiser. We don't just go back, right? Like, it's not like we just go like, okay, pandemic over, this hippy-dippy remote work bullshit, out the window with that. Let's go back into the office. Let's go back into spending two hours uh, commuting every day, having uh, meetings back-to-back. No, we're going to go back to working differently. So how do we do it? How do we go back to remote, you know, save us save us all uh, spending money on your book and building your empire and showing real interest in the hard work that you've put in? Fuck all of that. Obviously, we want the quick fixes. How do we have perfect remote work life culture? And also talk to us about the drawbacks, the things that we won't necessarily be thinking or definitely the things some of us are doing wrong without even knowing. Yeah, so I'd say the first thing to do When you're in a transition where you go from like, oh, we were used to being in the office, we're all around the same conference table whenever we wanted to be, and now we work remotely and we can't do those things, is not to replicate the office at home. Not to replicate the patterns and the way we were slicing up our day when we were in the office and just replace the conference table with a Zoom meeting or whatever. It's always Zoom whenever someone goes to remote for the first time, right? So don't do that. That is going to be frustrating. I think most people, I mean, we're now, what, four months into the quarantining in the US, at least. Most people have realized, yeah, that didn't work. They thought it worked for about two weeks and then everyone went like, I cannot do another video call. I can't fill my day like that. It's exhausting and it's it's not that it's not productive. That's the thing that people got like the two punch. On the one hand, they learned very quickly that actually sitting in front of a video call in terms of productivity in the raw sense of can we discuss things, can we communicate things, was just as good, right? So that dispelled one myth right there that we had to meet in person for productivity reasons. But what I think people did not realize was we, or a lot of people, like to meet in person, not for productivity reasons, but for human reasons, for the human connection, and then that didn't actually translate as well over Zoom as the productivity part did. So it was not satisfying. You couldn't just do all-day meetings in, in these video calls and expect that you had happy employees at the end of the day. What we've been telling people is that the transition, the key transition you have to make is to go from a synchronous way of working, that is where you have these gears you're trying to line up where like we're meeting in the green room at like 1.15 and everyone has to be there at that time and that's when we're going to do our status meeting where everyone sits patiently and each person, one after the other, accounts for their day and, and what they want to work on to an asynchronous style where we don't all have to be in the same place or at the same time to neither communicate nor collaborate. And the clearest way to illustrate this is that you have to move from a a verbal style of communication, a present style where we're talking, we're sitting in front of each other at the same time, to a written style. We have to become better writers, which is not a bad thing to become in general. I think uh, becoming a better writer means you become a better and clearer thinker. So it's a win on all those levels as well. But when it comes to remote work, It's not an optional good. It is a key requirement. You cannot run an efficient remote organization without becoming a at least halfway capable writer. Now, again, this isn't about Shakespeare and Hemingway. This is about communicating clearly what you've been working on, what you want to work on, what the challenges are, all these things of like, how do we make a company work thing? right? The pitches, the status updates, all that stuff. At Basecamp, it happens all in writing and it happens all asynchronously. And let's uh, carve out the past two and a half weeks after we launched Hey Product. Um, Prior to that, my week often would have like one or two meetings. And I have, I think, seven or eight reports at the company um, who have their own teams and are bubbling things up. And 97% of all the communication and collaboration that would happen would happen in writing. Now, this isn't your 
2016 email is dead. Let's move everything to chat kind of writing because I don't actually think consider that writing. That's staccato thinking. You're thinking one line at a time. People are reacting one line at a time. This is not a place for deep thought. A place for deep thought is people composing complete sentences that turn into full paragraphs, that turn into coherent thoughts. And it's those coherent thoughts and that co process of arriving at coherent thoughts where all the value lies. That you just don't show up to a meeting with a fuzzy agenda and then sit and shoot the shit with six people for an hour, right? It's not great. It has some social qualities to it when you are in the office, but absent of those social qualities remotely, its value is, is negative. Uh, you end up harming those people by involving them in that way in such a poorly formed process because you end up slicing their workday into tiny little work moments. And if we go back to our discussion of what brings human happiness and my sense of flow and so on, it's that deep work. And that deep work can't happen if you have an hour here and 45 minutes there and an hour and 45 there. You have to have long stretches of uninterrupted time. And you can only get those long stretches of uninterrupted time if your calendar is asynchronously configured, where all these updates and things you need to write and things you need to read can be bundled up and handled as a unit, either early in the morning or not even early, in the morning or around lunch or at the end of the day, not peppered out through the entire day. You need to be able to string together two, three, or even four hours of blissfully uninterrupted time where you can just go deep with the problems that need to be solved because that's what the business does, the problems that you want to solve because this is how you express your human capacity as a thinking creative individual and the things that ultimately end up being both the source of company productivity and human happiness. And that all relies on a schedule that isn't tightly wound in the way we used to do things when we were all in the office together. And the key bridge to get there is writing. You have to write. You have to communicate in writing. Now, that doesn't mean you can't ever call a meeting. We occasionally do that. And it usually happens when we've written something, someone else has written something back, and we go like, we have the facts, we have the arguments, but we don't have a meeting of the mind yet. And let's take our shared facts and shared arguments and then go into a full bandwidth discussion about this topic and arrive at a meeting of the minds. And meetings are good for that. I'll totally grant you that. It just so happens that that's not something you should have to do five times a day or three times a day or even two times a day. The vast majority of decisions we make at Basecamp, the projects we give go-ahead to and so on, someone writes a, up the thing, which means they think through the thing. They don't just put it on the agenda. They actually think through what it requires. And then someone goes like, yeah, that's great thinking. Let's do that. Done. Do you use like frameworks and stuff? Have you developed frameworks for teams in the way that things should be written? You know, obviously this is the very famous Jeff Bezos memo that he makes teams do. Is there a process, a best practice that you could simply suggest to listeners? There very much is. We wrote up a whole... Thank you, Dan, for setting me up with the perfect <laughs> question I always wanted to answer. <laughs> exactly. There very much is. And we've tackled this in a number of different ways. We have Basecamp's Guide to Communication. I think if you search for that online, you'll find it where we go through... If not, you need to fire your SEO team. <laughs> where you find out how do we set up, like we don't do stand-up meetings, for example. That's something that's common in a lot of development shop where like Monday morning, you all synchronously get together. We have these automated questions, which is part of how we use Basecamp is we use Basecamp to build Basecamp. So we end up with a Basecamp that's perfectly suited for this kind of operation and an implementation of our philosophy and approach to how to work. And one of the key aspects there is the automated question. So... Every Monday morning, we have an automated question that the system sends out that asks, what are you going to work on this week? Most people then fill that out with their aspirations for the week. It doesn't actually always end up being the actualities of the week, but at least you see what someone is thinking about, what they have on their plate, and you can interact, interact off that, right? And our company, we have about 60 people at the moment. You can't gather 60 people in a room. 
right? Like that's not a thing. You don't do a 60-person status meeting. So most of the status meetings and, and other crutches that companies who meet in person would do happen around small groups. So you end up knowing a lot perhaps about what the other four people on your team do, but not that much about what the rest of the company does, which is not great for cross-pollinization. It's not great for sharing knowledge. It's not great for getting help outside your team. But this question goes out to the 60 people, and a lot of them will read a lot of it all the time. And then you, all the time we have things like someone from support will chime in that someone working in operations, oh, you're working on this uh, abuse mitigation policy. I actually have a case here that's relevant to this exactly. And then boom, you, you, you're creating collaboration across your organization. Um, at this, in the same vein we have at the end of each day, we ask, what did you work on today? Not everyone answers that every day, and they certainly don't answer it in like, oh, here's the bullet points I checked off. No, they answered it as a narrative of like, here are the broad strokes of what I worked on. And again, it inspires cross-pollinization, inspires collaboration, inspires a general sense of like, I know what's going on here, which is a thing that a lot of employees end up feeling quite frustrated about in a lot of companies. It's like, I don't know what's going on. I didn't even know this was coming. I, what is this initiative? I haven't heard about this before. Now you have a chance to. We've wrapped all of this up, too, in a development process that we call Shape Up, which is also a free guide, book, whatever you want to call it, that we share online, basecamp.com slash shape up, which talks about how we do development at Basecamp. We do it in these six-week cycles um, where we decide six weeks worth of work that we're going to tackle. And then we shut the hell up for about six weeks at least in the ideal scenario, and let people actually do that, right? There's so much of this meeting-driven culture where people just love sitting around each other and coming up with new shit to do. And then there's not very much time to do the shit we just decided on yesterday because, hey, now there's a new meeting for us to brainstorm and come up with more shit for us to work on. The problem is not a lack of ideas. The problem is a lack of time to implement ideas. Everyone have more ideas that they could ever fulfill. So where you need to optimize is for the implementation of those ideas to be able to happen. So at Basecamp, we do these six weeks. It's called Shape Up. We have a whole book about it. It goes into how we shape the pitches, as we say, like how we outline the boundaries of the work, uh, how we allow teams the autonomy to make their own decisions so that they're not um, feeling like they're just robots implementing whatever micromanager set them up to do, that they actually can take some pride in the craftsmanship and creativity of their work. This is, again, one of those key so sources of human happiness. If you study any of the sort of psychological inquiries into what actually makes people happy at work, well, it is things like uh, autonomy and mastery and independence. So optimize your process for... Uh, Letting those things flourish without you being the goddamn nag all the time. Whoa, what did you do? What's the latest? What's your what's the status of this? What do you think are the biggest pitfalls of remote working? So these are like the benefits of like if you do it well, these are these are definitely the output, the productivity. I can hear all of this. I can see how this is gonna work super well. And it's been really great, actually, on a personal level, listening to this stuff, uh, you know, by accident, not design, my company started as a remote company. Uh, we had no employees. Now we've got six. We're hiring another four at the moment. You know, no one in the company, this company, my last one was fully office based. This one, no choice. So it's really interesting because the choice was taken away from me and I'm loving it. I think it's great. But, you know, also practice a lot of the pitfalls and little mistakes that I can hear you saying and can see how embedding it early is going to be really valuable for us. So firstly, thank you, because it's useful for me on a personal level. But then also, what are what are the, some of the negatives and the downsides that you think that are worth uh, thinking through and mitigating? For me, I think the main issue with remote work is social isolation. And this is, of course, made even worse right now during the pandemic. But even when you don't have a pandemic, um, you have to be very conscious of the fact that if you just work from home, and perhaps you live alone and you don't see people, that's not a good setup. Like humans are social creatures and they need human interaction on a regular basis to be able to function as whole humans. And if you end up depriving yourself of that through happenstance, which is what often happens, that someone thinks like, oh man, it's great. I can work from home. I, I don't have to even put on pants. I don't have to do anything. I don't have to shower. It go, it can go south pretty quick, right? There's a reason why... You could end up feeling like you're still in Copenhagen. 
<laughs> yes. Uh, you never get outside. You never see the sun. It's like it's dark for four months at a time. That's not healthy. There's a reason why um, it's against the human rights conventions to imprison someone in complete isolation because humans just go mad with that. And I've had that myself. I have had periods in my life where I lived alone and I worked remotely and it did not take that many days before things got sort of swirly. And you have to counteract that swirliness both preemptively and intentionally. So uh, that's things about creating a very distinct separation between work and home, especially when you work from home, right? Um, we used to have a a guy at base camp who would have two sets of slippers. He would have his work slippers and he'd have his home slippers. And he would change into his work slippers when he was going to work to mark the transition from, okay, now I'm working. And then when he put on his home slippers, he'd be like, okay, now I'm not working. So now I shouldn't be answering work emails. And this has become ever harder as our personal electronic devices can be used for both home and work. And all of a sudden you end up answering work emails at nine o'clock at night. Why? Well, because you could. You need to really counteract that. One of the things that I do is I have the majority of all my work stuff on a, not on a laptop that can go with me into the living room, but on a desktop. I have an iMac and it sits on my desk and it's where everything is set up the best. This is where I enjoy doing my programming work, such that if I'm away from that computer, it's kind of actually a little bit of a pain. I mean, I can. I have a laptop. I can set it up. I can update it to do it. But it's a bit of a pain. And introducing that amount of friction such that you don't end up working 24-7 is really important. So thinking about setting that up and thinking about as a company encouraging that, this is one of the reasons we bang this drum very loudly at Basecamp, that 40-hour work weeks, they're enough. You don't need to put in more than eight hours a day. And if you do, it's actually not something that we're going to applaud. It's not something you're going to win a medal for. It's something you're going to end up with a bit of a talking to actually about if it keeps on happening. We're like, this is not healthy. This is not a long-term stable situation. We have a bunch of people at Basecamp who've been at the company for over 10 years. You can't have that sort of tenure if you burn people out after six months because you're like, oh, man, it's amazing you can put in 60 hours a week or 80 hours a week. No, it's not amazing. It burns people out, and it ends up ensuring that they can't stay at your company for 10 years. So that transition, I just say, is, is demarcating when are you working, when are you at home, making those hours explicit uh, at a lot of especially creative companies you have this message i just romantically effused about ruby like how much i love it right that can easily go into like well i love it so much i want to do it all the time i've had to grab myself by the neck several times and go like do you know what just because i love something does not mean i have to do it all the time i love strawberries dipped in chocolate does that mean that should be my only thing I eat 24-7 just because I could? No, it does not mean that. Many beautiful, wonderful things that you can spend your time on and your resources with are things you should enjoy in moderation. And you'll end up enjoying them more as well. Exactly. When, when you're not like, if you eat 100 strawberries dipped in chocolate, you're not going to want to eat any more <laughs> strawberries for the next three months or perhaps even forever. But if you enjoy it in moderation, I think work has a great moderation of about 30 to 40 hours a week. That's a great moderation for work the majority of the time. I mean, this is not something we just came up with. I mean, the whole industrialized world realized at some point that the 40-hour work week was a good general guideline for how to divide uh, work. So that's the one part of it. The other part, again, is to emphasize you need social interactions. You cannot go days without seeing someone. So if you do live alone and you're not in a pandemic, Go work at a coffee shop. Go work at a co-location spot. Remote work does not mean work from your literal home. It just means that you don't have to be in the office. There are many other places to work. I'm interested, like you mentioned, um, obviously, like burnout it sounded like, uh, let's just say there's a lot of wisdom there without, that you would usually hear from people with experience. You know, the stories you hear here is, well, I had X, Y, Z, then I had this epiphany, whether it was, you know, to your point of... Uh, sort of loneliness or depression from you know Denmark of being like well actually this isn't the environment for me I need to be in sun I need to be around nature as well I need to be in in that kind of environment was there anything like that with uh, your early experience in your career around burnout or any 
clear experiences with mental health struggles throughout your career that have helped shape how you move forward with your mental well-being? In some ways, no. I was a keen observer, though, spectator of what was going on and what would happen to the people who did do that and what would happen to their mental processes and what they would talk about and how they would talk and thinking, oh, I don't want that. I don't want to be that person, which was part of this just weird moment in, let's say, particularly from mid-2000s to early 2010s, where there was so much glorification of hustle culture that like, oh, look at these Silicon Valley entrepreneurs and they're putting in 80 hours, 100 hours. Aren't they amazing? And then they would give an interview and they would talk about things like, well, you can actually work 130 hours if you're strategic with your bathroom breaks. And I would go like, wait, who wants this? Why do we want this? This doesn't sound nice at all. Like, I like to work, I like to program, and I like to do it for 40 hours, and then I like to do other things. I like to photography or hang out with my friends or play video games or do any of these other things that make life worth living, in my opinion. So part of this was as an observer of all these cautionary tales of listening to people who did commit egregious acts of overwork and thinking, this is the last person I want to model. Now, I've had occasional tastes of this. Irony would have it, I occasionally just, or not occasionally, I just had a taste of this. We just launched our new service, uh, email service, hey.com. And for the two weeks after that launch, I probably worked 12-hour days every day. So that's about an 80-hour work week. And it was crushing. I mean, it was crushing in the sense, both in the moment feeling just disoriented and, and exhausted, and then zooming out thinking, I can't do this. I can't keep doing this. If this is my new life, I'm not interested. I will absolutely quit and go plant flowers or work in a garden or something else. I cannot deal with this. And also off-brand, right? You know, at the end of the day, you're someone who's built up a, a career and a persona as well about what you say, what you do, what you think. Like They represent the same thing, and that is ultimately what creates a sense of purpose and happiness within people as well when you're super aligned, and that is clearly so jarring to you. Oh, it, it, was, it was terrible, and not even just like in a psychological sense, but in a physical sense. I wear this aura ring that tracks your sleep, I'd go to sleep and I'd wake up and I'd see my stats and I'd, I'd see stats I'd never seen before. Like my heart rate would just be through the roof during the night. And I'm like, this is not just unhealthy in like a long-term mental health. Like, no, no, this is like physically bad. And it doesn't even take that long. The, the thing that here is it, for the, about the first two days, it was actually exhilarating. You're like all this is going on and we're launching a new product and, and people really like it and we're fighting with this huge company. And like, there's an adrenaline rush that you get that for me lasted about 48 hours where I was like, whoa, this, this is happening, right? And then after that, I just went like very quickly downhill to the point where I was like, I don't like this. I don't want this. I want out of this. And I couldn't, or at least I felt I couldn't. We were in this titanic battle with Apple fighting for our literal existence as a new service. And I felt like I couldn't let the people who've worked on this for two years down. I couldn't let the company. That's like all these pressures that people use to justify their overwork. They were now being exerted on me. Wrapping up now, because obviously we're running over time. Um, I need to know what are your like, what's supposed to be the best piece of advice you've ever got from someone in your life that's helped shape you? The funny thing is I, I very often get asked, like, what's the one thing I have to think about? And I can't think of any silver bullet. Like, there's not a one thing where you just go like, oh, wow, that was the thing that unlocked my entire brain. Like, that's not a thing. And I think actually chasing that one thing leads people down the wrong path. That's like, there's this secret. And if they just find the secret, everything is going to work out. I don't believe in that. I don't think there is a secret. There's a million compounding influences that end up shaping who you are and where you go. Be on the path. Stay on the path, path of learning, path of experience, path of openness, all these other things. Don't look for a secret. Fair enough. So no secrets. David, we're going to let you go. I hope you keep on trolling and keep doing what you do. I've had a great time. Thank you so much for it. All right. Thanks for having me on. 
Here at Mindset Win, we want to give you the tools to become better at what you do. Taking inspiration and wisdom from our guests, we will hear stories, strategies, tips and tricks. Told by leading names in sport and beyond. Who know what it takes to get to the very top. There will be two episodes each week packed with amazing stories and practical takeaways for us all to follow. Search for Mindset Win on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. Next week on Secret Leaders. I think now what I know is that, you know, there usually comes a time in, in my businesses where people say, oh, you've got to stop doing the customer interface and you've got to stop doing the copywriting and you've got to stop doing the naming of the products. And actually, that's what I do. That's what I do better than other people. So I shouldn't stop doing it unless it becomes overwhelming and then I should get help. But I shouldn't stop doing the part that I love doing. That was, I suppose, the mistake that I've made in the past. We hope you enjoyed this episode. It was brought to you by me, Dan Murray-Serta, producer Rich Martell, editor Harry Morton of Lower Street Media, and marketing by Hannah Russell of Mags Creative and stunning visual design by our talented designer, Christina Naru of SmartUpVisuals.com. You can check out show notes, transcripts, and our upcoming live events on our website, secretleaders.com. If you've not yet, please hit subscribe, leave us a review, tell a friend, take a screenshot of this episode and add it to an Insta story. I mean, you know what to do. And tag us at Secret Leaders or at Dan Murray Serta, and we'll add you to our story in appreciation back. Rich and I put together Secret Leaders for free because we love our day jobs as entrepreneurs, but every time someone takes the time to share it, it means a lot to us. So don't forget, it's the little things like that that keep us coming back every week and every year into the studio. See you next week.